So let me give you a, a quick advanced statement of what I'm going to do, and then I'll come back around to this again at the ending. Um, if I can help you take the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, and learn to mentally associate it with the gospel. If when I say Trinity, you think gospel, and those two things are very close together in your mind, then my task is accomplished. That's, that's the goal. And, and what I'm trying to overcome there is a lot of people, when they think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they think doctrine of the Trinity, they don't associate it with much of anything. It's sort of an isolated, standalone, here's another weird thing we believe as Christians kind of a thing, right? Or they associate it with the question, what is that like, right? And so they immediately want to jump into like, is it like an apple? Is it like an egg? Is it like, like ice cubes floating in steaming water or something like that? Um, and, and, and I, you know, we can talk about analogies and all of those things are legitimate and valid to think about and ponder, but they might indicate that you've learned a habit of associating Trinity with something pretty abstract. And I want to, uh, help us learn to associate it with the gospel itself. So, um, I should also point out that the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that clever theologians figured out and is just sort of one of the secrets that God is keeping, but that we somehow got word of, and so we say it now a lot. Um, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think is a key framework for theology like this. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. What that means is God has secrets, you know? You wanna hear one of them? Shame on you, you shouldn't want to hear them. I'm not going to tell them, right? God has secrets. They belong to the Lord. They're permanently his. And um, our, our job as Christians, and certainly my job as a theologian, is not to find out what those secret things that only belong to the Lord are. Deuteronomy 29, 29 goes on to say, secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children so that we may obey the words of this law. Now, there's a lot going on there, right? A, God has secrets. Secret things belong to the Lord. But B, the things that have been made known, which were God's prerogative to keep to himself if he had wanted to, but he instead made them known to us, they belong to us. They're, they're really ours. Like, they, they are part of the information, uh, part of the mental equipment that God wants us to have. And they belong to our children. And that tells me something. If they belong to us and to our children, that means they are not only learnable, but they're teachable, right? You can make the transgenerational, uh, the cross-generational transfer to get that to the next generation. And that means it's part of the content of Christian theology. In an academic setting, I can even give a test on it and grade you, right? <laughs> like the, these things belong to us and to our children. You can pass them along. And then the third thing there in Deuteronomy 29, 29 is uh, they belong to us and to our children so that we may obey the words of this law. That is to say, somehow, some way, these are practically oriented. That God didn't make this known just so you could have it in your head and go, there's a thing I know. But actually that they will somehow feed into the purpose of Christian life, which is to be rightly related to God and to respond in obedience um, to his commands and, and live a life of faith. So, I want to state really briefly just what the doctrine of the Trinity is, because all three of us are going to be doing various things about and around and with the doctrine of the Trinity. But just um, in, in short form, and a quick little formula, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is one being in three persons, which is, uh, I'm just using the fancy words being in persons. They're not that fancy, but they're also not directly Bible words, right? Um, 
Uh, we're adding those so that when we say the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we've got some nice nouns to hang that on. When I say the one God, I mean the divine being. There is one being. And when I say Father, Son, and Spirit, um, those are three persons. Now, just really briefly here, just to memorize that and say the one God, uh, that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is one being in three persons, can right away save you from a number of mistakes. A lot of people will say, uh, and in fact we'll sing this in some perfectly good songs, we'll sing that God is three and one, right? Or that the Trinity teaches that God is three and one. It's a kind of a shorthand, but you notice when you leave out the nouns, being and persons, three and one can be confusing. You're like three, three what and one what? And so people will do the whole one plus one plus one equals one kind of a routine or something like that. Um, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity does not teach that God is one being and three beings at the same time. That would be, what, tritheism. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity doesn't teach that God is one person and three persons at the same time. That would also, whatever heresy that would be called, um, that would also be a, like a logical contradiction. Right? It would just be this confusing sort of, somehow God is one something, but also three something at the same time. The whole point is one being in three persons. Now, the reason, uh, that's not a logical contradiction. It's just saying that there is one God, and that one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. You see how it's not a straight-across contradiction? Now, it's mind-blowing, and here's the trick. There's nothing else exactly like it. So we can spend some time on analogies, but we're not going to come up with, I can't say, like, define the Trinity and give me two examples, right? Like, there's not going to be another example of the Trinity. There's only one God. Um, so that's the basic Christian claim, that God is one being and three persons. There's an ancient creed called the Athanasian Creed, though it's not by Athanasius. I think people just like it, and they like him. So we call it the Athanasian Creed, and it says, we confess... Um, one being in three persons, and three persons in one being, and here's the key. We don't confuse the persons or divide the being, right? So you want to you stick to the oneness of the divine being and not divide it up. And there are various ways you can divide it up. You can say, like, the Father's got part of it and the Son's got part of it. That's going to be a problem because then the Father would be, like, part God, half God, and, and, this, and the Son would be the other half of God, or in this case, the other third of God. Um, so we don't want to divide the being, but we also don't want to confuse the persons and do that kind of move like saying, well, it's all God somehow, so I guess the Father died on the cross and the Son sent the Father or something like that. That would be to confuse the persons. So you can think of the doctrine of the Trinity as just kind of a, a little chart um, that lives in the back of your head that keeps you from saying things you know better than to say if you were thinking clearly. Yeah. So one being, three persons, basic statement. Now, here's what I want to do to draw out the connection of the doctrine of the Trinity um, to the gospel. I want to look at Galatians 4.4, if you can put the first slide up. Um, actually, it's, it's um, Galatians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. You kind of have to take them in all together. Um, Galatians 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, um, and because you are sons, uh, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, um, this is a statement, first of all, I want to say, Paul is talking about uh, the gospel. 
right? He's talking about you were under the law, you were under the curse, but in the fullness of time, when, when the time was appropriate, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law. What I want to say is that Paul's not mainly here talking about the doctrine of God. He's not saying, like, you used to not understand who God was, but now in the fullness of time, you do understand who God is. You know, see, he's not doing um, the doctrine of God in that sense and teaching you about the nature of God. What he's trying to teach you about here is the gospel. He's telling the story of the history of salvation. And as he tells that story in its fullness, he can't help but mention the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? You see, how it, this is not a chapter where Paul sat down to say, now let me teach him about the Trinity. It's a chapter where Paul sat down to say, now let me make sure they understand the nature of the gospel here. And as he tells the nature of salvation, he's explaining what's going on with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Yeah, I just, um, I, I just drew a little triangle. You can imagine my personal Bible is full of little triangles that I've drawn among Father, Son, and Spirit as they appear in various texts. I even thought about putting out a Trinity study Bible for people, but I thought, yeah, it's kind of cheesy. And I don't want to um, steal the fun from anybody of drawing their own triangles. So, so please, I invite you. Uh, turn your own Bible into a Trinity study Bible. Here in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, you can see um, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, and then in the fullness of time, God sent the spirit of his son. Yeah. So we'll come back to those sendings here in a minute, but I just want to focus on that triangle for a minute. Um, when it says God sent his son, and you're looking to complete your little Trinity drawing in your Bible, you might say, well, I wish it mentioned the Father here. That would be a lot tidier, frankly, if it said, in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son. But this is just how the Bible works. This is how Paul and John and company talk. Um, nine times out of ten, maybe more than that, um, when they use the word God, it, it, it's the word God, but it means God the Father. I can prove it here. You don't have to take my word for it. You can be a good Berean and test this with Scripture. If God sent his Son... What kind of God must we be talking about? It must be the, the, a, God, a God who has a son. The person of God who has a son that he can send. Same thing in John 3.16, by the way. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The word God in John 3.16 picks out God the Father. You see that? It's really important to see that. Because otherwise, you can read chunks of the Bible and say, why isn't it teaching me more about God the Father? And you realize, John 3.16 is teaching you about God the Father. God so loved the world he gave his son. That is, God the Father so loved the world. So there's a bunch of great teaching about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, hiding under the word God. Yeah. So I've overwritten here the word um, God with the word Father, uh, not to improve on the Bible, uh, but just to make it explicit for the purposes of teaching. What we're dealing with here is the Father sending the Son. Now, um, Actually, if we had a little more time, we could just pause and kind of ponder the, the fact that all three persons of the Trinity are showing up here in a description of the gospel. I would say that's because Paul is already writing from the position that I've said I hope we can all get to, which is to think, when I think gospel, I immediately think Trinity at the same time. When I think Trinity, I think gospel. That's Paul's normal daily way of thinking and writing. He's thinking about the gospel. He's worried about these Galatians, right? If we had time, we could look at the whole letter to the Galatians. And why is Paul talking about this? Paul's basically saying, you Galatians think you can start by faith and then end by works? That's not how this happens. I've got three reasons why. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
right? He's kind of got a three-point outline that he works through in Galatians 3 and 4, um, where he talks about the Son redeeming us um, and the Spirit um, um, providing us power and how that refutes the works righteousness plan that the Galatians are, are falling into. Um, so when Paul talks about the gospel, he, I feel like he can't help himself. He will mention Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, sometimes, I, sometimes I teach it this way. I bring a triangle with me into the pulpit and um, just read a passage of Paul and say, I'm going to hit this thing three times when he talks about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And sometimes you end up having to wait a couple minutes and the suspense, it kind of kills you. But eventually he'll get to it. He will always get to Father, Son, and Spirit as he explains salvation. Okay, that's the first point I wanted to make from this. Second point is um, this double sending. Do you see that um, the Father sent forth his Son? And then in the fullness of time, when it was time to accomplish the work of salvation that he had planned and promised from long ago, the Father sent the Son, and then the Father sent the Spirit. Now, these two sendings are, uh, they're closely related. They are both, about, they are both um, crucial to salvation. If God is going to bring about salvation, what's going to happen is the Father is going to send the Son, and the Father is going to send to the Spirit. And um, they're going to be closely related all the time, this sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. The fancy word for this in systematic theology is the mission of the Son and the Spirit, and that's just because the Latin word for send is missio. So when the Father sends the Son, um, the Father gives the Son a mission or gives him a sending. Um, fun fact, in Christian talk these days, we use the word mission to refer to cross-cultural communication of the gospel. Yeah, going, you know, going on a mission trip or supporting missions. Um, that, there's a long history of that, but there's a longer history of theology using the word mission to refer to this. So that in the old days when I say, remember, missions are important, people would say, yes, the Father sent the Son and the Spirit. Right? So there's Trinitarian theology undergirding our commitment to missions in the modern sense of cross-cultural communication of the gospel. Because why do we cross cultural barriers and communicate uh, the good news of Jesus Christ? Because the Father in the fullness of time sent the Son and sent the Spirit. Yeah. So these two missions. Um, they are two, and there's a kind of a, um, think of them distinctly, and then also think of how they are related to each other. Uh, an early church father named Irenaeus of Lyon talked about God the Father doing everything with both hands. Right? And it's, it's one of my favorite Trinitarian analogies because it's so wrong, it's right again. Like, th this is like, this is the worst example of the Trinity I could imagine. Right? In fact, none of you are going to go home and think, somehow the Trinity is like hands, you know, like it's... It's, there's no danger that you'll accidentally take that on as literal truth. What it gets at, though, is like God the Father is really in this and takes hold of everything with both hands. He, in the fullness of time, sends the Son, and in the fullness of time, he sends the Spirit. So think of them as distinct. You can even think, it's even fruitful to think about how the Son is not the Spirit and how the Spirit is not the Son, and they don't just do the same thing twice, right? The Son takes on human nature, takes human nature into union with himself, and dies and rises. Um, and the son's sort of role in salvation is to tell you, you, sons of Adam and Eve, have blown it, and I will now step in and do the human thing on your behalf. Right? There's a kind of a replacing or in your stead sort of an element to the work of the son when he comes to save and redeem us from under the curse of the law, as Paul says here in Galatians 4. 
If you started to just talk about the spirit doing that, that would be a mess. You'd have like this other incarnation or two persons incarnate in Christ or something. Instead, you have to follow the Bible's lead and say, the son is not the spirit. Um, they're, they're the same God, right? But they're distinct persons. And the spirit doesn't become incarnate. What does the spirit do? The spirit indwells, right? Um, the Spirit lives in and empowers. And instead of kicking you out of your life and saying, you have already proven that you've blown this and can't do it. Let me do the human thing for you. The Spirit instead actually gets a hold of you and empowers you supernaturally on the basis of what the Son has done in your stead to begin doing those things and responding to God in obedience. So Son and the Spirit together but distinct. Yeah, Much more could be said. This is like, in the field of systematic theology, we would say Christology and pneumatology and how they go together. And for using those big words, now I have to charge you money. No, just kidding. Um, okay, so these two sendings are the shape of salvation history. In the fullness of time, God sends forth his son and God sends forth the spirit of his son. Notice the spirit's work is keyed to the work of the son. Because your sons, he sends the spirit of his son. And then it returns us all back to the father. It's all from the father and back to the father. Because when the Spirit of the Son is in you, what does it empower you to do? Cry out, Abba, Father. Right? To actually have a son-like response to the Father. Yeah. Now, here's the next step beyond understanding those missions, those two sendings that we see in Scripture. The next step is to recognize that if the Father sent the Son and the Spirit, he must have always already had the Son and the Spirit with him. Right? It's not that... It's not that God was in heaven saying like, well, too bad I'm just a monopersonal, non-Trinitarian God. It's going to be hard to pull off salvation. I guess I'd better develop a son and a spirit to send him. Right? That's not how it works. The fact that in the fullness of time, God did send to the son and the spirit means that in the depth of eternity, God always had son and spirit. So that when the son shows up clearly and manifestly in the New Testament, um, and, and when the phrase son of God in the New Testament, doesn't just mean a descendant of David who's the Messiah, but now means like, oh, you mean the Son of God, it turns out. Like the, the eternal second person of the Trinity, always in relation to the Father. There was never a time when the Father was Father without the Son, or when the Father and the Son were together without the Spirit. It was always the one being of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. All of that comes from us understanding the depth of in the fullness of time, God sending the Son and the Spirit. Okay, that's a lot. So um, let me hand you one technical term that theologians have used all through church history to talk about this. Oh, I think I have a slide for this. That would be handy. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Well, there you go. I've made it very simple. Um, so everything below that yellow dotted line is the missions, the sendings of the Son and the Spirit into salvation history. But it presupposes that behind that or above that or within the very being of God, there was already, not missions, because sending is a salvation history word, right? Galatians 4, 4, and 6, sending is what happens in the fullness of time. But it presupposes that what was already going on in the depths of eternity was something like sending, something, something that corresponds appropriately to God's sending, or let me say it backwards, uh, something in God to which the sending appropriately corresponds. Is that too, too precious to say it that way? It's a, when, God, when God the Father sends the Son, it's because in the depth of eternity, the Son was always from the Father 
without getting further away from the Father. The, the Father and the Son always stood to each other in this relationship of the Son being from the Father and saying to the Father, I'm from you, and the Father being the one from whom the Son is and saying, you're from me. Right? Not literally. We've already seen like literally what the Father and Son say to each other in, in, the, in the book of Hebrews. Um, but that that's the eternal relation. It's some kind of relation of origin or principle. And the technical term that theologians use for what's above that line is processions. See, I've written it there in red that in the, in the being of God, there is a coming forth or a fromness. Is that a word? Fromness? A fromness that the Son and the Spirit have with relation to the Father. That's, what's, that's the, the core of the doctrine of the Trinity is that the, the life of the living God is a life in which there are these processions that stay within the being of God. It's like a going forth that stays in and is the dynamic life of fellowship and communion that is the life and love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So when you get to Galatians 4, 4, and you say, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, um, Christians have always read that as saying, wow, this, this is it. This is when the life of God, uh, which would have been itself, even if there were no sinners to save, even if there were no cre creatures created, God would eternally have been Father, Son, and Spirit. But for us and our salvation, when we were in deep, deep trouble, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, always had his son in this eternal relation of procession, but for us and our salvation sent forth his son and also sent forth the spirit. Now, this is, of course, the exact thing that I get really excited about all the time, that the, the triune life of God, which is all about, it's all about God, not about us, right? It's all about God having this eternal life of fellowship as Father, Son, and Spirit, but that it gets opened up to us and deployed or put into action for our salvation. Lots of ways God could, God could have saved. God's infinitely creative and all-powerful. But the way he chose to save is that the, the father-son-spirit relation becomes active and becomes part of our lives. How? It's all in Galatians 4, 6. The spirit of the son is within us on the basis of the work of the son, crying out, Abba, Father, so that we say to God, what the Son says to God, right? The Son says, Abba, Father, and we get that spirit of sonship by the, uh, we get that spirit of sonship within us and say that back to God. Um, one more slide, I think, just draws this out specifically. Oh, okay, two more slides. Uh, go one more, there we go. Um, all I did here was circle the word Son that occurs um, both within the Trinity as the eternal Son and also within our salvation, that we become sons of God. Um, and, to, and to make this inclusive, to make sure women know they're included, um, sons in the sense of created male and female, but enjoying the same relation that the second person of the Trinity has to the first person, right? That we are all, um, because he is eternal son of God, therefore we are all sons of God in that sense. Which means that in the church there are a bunch of female sons of God, right? Same problem I have uh, that within the church, I am a very manly man and part of the bride of Christ. Like I mentally make that adjustment and I'm not going to say like groom of Christ to make myself feel included because that's nuts, right? I'm going to say, so just as there are female sons of God, um, I'm going to be, uh, uh, there's going to be a bride of Christ that includes men as well. Um, this right here where we can talk about being children of God, being sons of God and mean it in various ways, 
But this shows us that um, when we are experiencing the gospel of salvation, we are encountering the triune depths of God. Which means if you were thinking about being children of God, but not thinking about the Trinitarian depth of it, you weren't wrong. You just weren't getting all that was there. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the main thing that the doctrine of the Trinity adds to our understanding of salvation. It's not that you were wrong, and then if you come to my Trinity class, you can be right. It's that you were right, and you weren't getting the full depth of it, because there's Trinitarian depth. I want to say it this way. Everything we know about salvation makes more sense, is deeper, and means more if we understand it Trinitarianly. Yeah, Trinitarianly is kind of an ugly adverb, but I'm going with it. Trinitarianly. So um, our adoption as sons of God is deeper if we understand it Trinitarianly, that the relationship the Son has to the Father has now been made over and applied to me in my life, that there's an eternal triune depth to that. You can actually do this with every blessing of salvation. It's a little less obvious in some. It's very obvious in adoption. In adoption as sons, we tap into the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity. But it's also true of sanctification and justification and forgiveness of sins and communion and fellowship. All of these have an immediate obvious meaning. Um, and then they have, as you run it through the grid of scripture and understand it in light of the triune being of God, they have a Trinitarian depth to it um, that kind of beckons us in. Well, that is the connection of the Trinity and the gospel. And um, uh, whenever I get to visit a church and share for a little while about this and think, I have so much more to say about this, uh, my closing prayer and hope is that by pointing out to you kind of the main connections of how this works, I can now say, you know what you should read next on this? Well, Galatians 4, for one, but also Ephesians 1, but also Romans 8, but also John 1. Um, the point is like, now that I've shown you this, I hope it rings a lot of bells and makes a lot of connections with things you already know. And it gives you a desire to kind of run it back through the grid because um, becoming alert to and aware of God's eternal existence as Father, Son, and Spirit can be a little bit like Taking a nature walk through somewhere you've been several times, but then you go with a trained naturalist who knows lots of things about why the trees are like they are and why they're where they are and how they're related. They can point a few things out to you, and then your next 50 walks through that field or for that forest, you can look and see, ah, oh, yes, I, I can see it now. It was all here all the time. I kind of knew it, but now that I've been given a heads up, I can see how these things are all related. That's my hope, that with the Trinity Gospel Connection drawn, and, um, and I've shown you how to draw one triangle in your Bible. My confidence um, being in a church where I can trust people to read the Bible for themselves is that you are now empowered and equipped, all you need is an ink pen, to go through the New Testament and start drawing these triangles and tracing the Trinitarian depth of salvation. Thanks.